Hello everyone, <clears throat> Simon Jacobson, and we will be speaking about how to build a marriage that defies the odds. When you look at the state of marriage in the world today, especially in the Western world, it's not very uh, promising. How many successful and healthy marriages are there today? What even defines ma- success in marriage? What defines a healthy relationship? Love. Is it means two people who get along with each other? Or is there something more than that? When you think about statistics, statistics are very complex and difficult to really measure the divorce rate. Yet, most of the numbers in the Western world, America, is hovers around 40-50% marriages end up in divorce. Whether that means within a few years or many years, that's where it gets more complicated. But it definitely is a high number. And that's not even considering when you're dealing with how many dysfunctional and uh, absentee or unhealthy marriages that are failing, but they technically are not divorced, the, the spouses, the couple. So, of course, this presents the billion-dollar question that's asked again and again, and that is, can we build and maintain healthy and sustainable relationships? Is there a formula for a successful marriage? And if it is, what is it? I'm not suggesting that that's a question that's easily answered. If it were, we would obviously have a far better marriage rate and better, healthier relationships. But it's not a question we can either ignore. Like the famous saying, it's difficult to speak about it, but it's even more difficult to be quiet about it. Because it affects so much of our lives. It affects our children, which in turn affects us as we turn into adults. So it's a topic that's well worth addressing to the best of our ability, is what I'll try to do in in talking about this topic. So, of course, we have to get to the beginning of it all, which is what is a relationship? What is a marriage? And then to address what makes a marriage work and why there are challenges that that don't allow marriages to work well. Of course, we're dealing with deeply emotional elements. We're dealing with not just running a fish in business. We're dealing with something that affects our own inner psyches. In relationships, that brings out the best in us and the worst in us. So let's begin with defining what is a healthy relationship to the best, again, as best as we can. Now, how do you even define it? What criteria do we use? There's so many different opinions. So I'm going to use a very practical criteria. The criteria is, what are the results? If you want to know if something is healthy or something is unhealthy, look at its effects on others. Because if we just rely on our own definitions, I could say something's healthy, you could say it's not healthy, you could say it's healthy, I say it's not healthy, and where do we go? Everybody has their opinion, and we may even have every opinion may have merit. But when you look at results, results don't lie. So in any given entity, if you want to know if a business is successful, there are certain criteria. Is it making a profit? Is it ethical? Are the employees happy? And a bunch of other criteria. You may disagree by the criteria, but there are criteria, and then you look at the results. And the results tell you, did you live up to what is considered the standard of success? 
So what is a successful relationship, a successful marriage? So let's look at the results. The results would seem to imply that a successful, healthy relationship should result in, number one, two wholesome spouses who are growing in the process and are not being hurt, not hurting each other, or one person being hurt or overlooked or, um, or dominated over and controlled. So basically, the relationship yields a healthy outcome, meaning the welfare of the people is growthful, constructive, happy, and the effect is also on the family, the children in growing up in the home, what effect it has on them. If you see children growing up, they feel neglected, they feel lack of confidence, they don't feel they have parents, they don't feel secure, you can rest assured there's something wrong in the marriage or in the way the couples interact or the each individual or, or all the above. So the results testify to what's happening. And that doesn't lie. So we could talk about from day to tomorrow and say, you know, it's a healthy relationship that I work all day and I never come home. Fine, you may think it's healthy. The other spouse, your, other, your spouse may, the other partner in, your, in the relationship may also feel that way. But let's look at what this happens to the children or what happens to each other. So I would define a healthy and successful relationship and marriage is one that yields healthy people. People who grow, people who address issues, people who feel confident, who are able to take on challenges in life. If you see children growing up, feeling insecure, needing to lie, filled with shame and guilt, and all the other phobias and neurosis that so dominates our society, you can rest assured that didn't come from nowhere. It came from an environment that was not completely healthy or maybe even toxic. And there we can't just say, you know what, my opinion is I was a healthy parent. Not necessarily. No one's a perfect parent. But a healthy parent yields healthy results. Now, are there exceptions and extenuating circumstances? Of course, things happen. You know, God forbid if there's a trauma, there's a crime, there's a murder, there's a death, there's abuse, a rape. So obviously that can upset even the healthiest homes and families. But even that, how do you deal with that? There's healthy ways of dealing with trauma, healthy days of, deals, ways of dealing with abuse, and there are unhealthy ways. So obviously we're not talking about situations that are out of our control. What is in our control that's the key. And the results will be clear. If it's a good cake coming out of the oven, you know the ingredients and the way the cake was baked was right. And the cake comes out bad, you know something was done wrong. Now I can elaborate in detail what that means, but I think it's quite clear. So let's identify a few key elements that are necessary. Necessary. Then there's optional elements in a relationship. And then we'll address, so what goes wrong? Why don't, you know, once you have the criteria, then we can identify what's missing and what we can do about it, which is, of course, the whole theme of this discussion. So number one, let's talk about the criteria. We talk about what is a healthy relationship, that there's a certain symbiotic relationship between two people. Each of them gives and takes doesn't have to be exactly equal, but there's a relationship. That's what relationship means. There's a relationship. Two people are relating to each other. And, it's, it's, and it, is, it is proportionate to each other. It's not one person is active and the other person is passive. There's a give and take from both directions. And 
That defines a healthy relationship because what happens is both will grow from that. If one person is completely on the receiving end, the other person is on the giving end, then what you have then usually is some type of imbalance. So you're probably feeding the person who's passive is not developing their um, talents and skills and self-confidence. And the person who's aggressive is just feeding, is just, is just reinforcing their own dominance. So the first thing is this type of symbiotic equality. The next thing is each one initiates. No one waits. It's not like, you know, you do something loving, then I'll respond. Everyone, no one stands on principle. People initiate on their own. Different times, people initiate. There's no rule, but there's, it's coming from both directions. The third thing is that love means caring for another person. Love is not selfish. It's not just about me, 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 and my needs. And even if my needs are being met, that's when I give love. No, love is a nurturing, validating experience. When you're loved, the person who loves you is telling you, I care about you. I care about you in your entirety, not just a part of you. I validate you. I respect your life. I respect your dignity. And I even understand your, sometimes your weaknesses. And I honor your vulnerability. If two, couple, if two spouses, a couple, both spouses feel that way, you know that's going in the right direction. Because it's nurturing. And we know nurturing behavior creates nurturing results. Both in the spouses and in the children. All that I've mentioned so far, the symbiotic, the initiating, the love and the nurturing components, all can be tangibly measured. And I don't think you'll find many people who disagree that these are ingredients for a healthy relationship. Let's talk about a few other matters. Since I talk about nurturing, let's talk about confidence and security. Security and confidence are critical components in a person being able to learn to spread their wings. Young children who are exploring and don't yet have any experience, they look to their parents for approval. They look for validation. Is the validation of the spirit that they have and the parents who provide that give them that type of confidence? Yes, you're going in the right direction. Yes, I believe in you. I love, I love you. I will support you. You may make a mistake. Let's move forward. What happens when that's lacking? That, let's talk about the opposite. The opposite, unfortunately, is quite well known. Constantly being criticized, being put down, invalidated. Not, you, you, this was worthless. Who do you think you are? Basically, parents projecting their own insecurities on their children. What do they create? Again, the proof is in the pudding. Literally, they create insecure children who turn into insecure adults. So you know that is definitely not healthy. Since when can an insecure person really fully function? First of all, you don't, can't function on your own fully because you don't have the total confidence to do what you have to do and the courage. Second of all, it affects how you treat others because you usually put them down because to compensate for your own insecurities, terrified of being attacked or being criticized. So basically a climate, a dysfunctional climate regarding this whole area of validation and nurturing creates exactly that, toxic energy, which spills over to the next generation. So here are some, some of the components. By no means is this going to be an exhaustive 
detailed workshop, which would really require more than one, but many, on every aspect. But these are fundamentals. These are fundamentals. And it all begins with how you are as an individual, how you look at yourself, which in turn spills over to how you look at your spouse, which in turn spills over to how you look at your family and your children. And for that matter, even to strangers and people on the outside. But where it's most acutely felt is in your own environment, in the home, where you're building the nest and the hearth, the nurturing environment that's meant to produce productive and healthy and functional and confident adults. So the self-esteem of the individual, which we often talk about as the malchus, the dignity, is so vital in a relationship. When there's that respect from one spouse to the other, that type of respect, as I mentioned, point number one, not one sees themselves as superior to the other, one is narcissistic and the other is passive-aggressive or, uh, or uh, enabling, etc., etc., or codependent, then you're creating the ingredients and the, the breeding ground, essentially the, all the ingredients necessary for a healthy life. So once we've defined to some extent what a relationship is meant to be like, and a healthy relationship, a successful relationship, then we can move to the next level and say, okay, so what's going on? Where are we failing? To just say marriages aren't working is really almost useless, because that's just saying the machine isn't working. But what's not making it work? So before we talk about what, what, what's not, that it's not work, before we define what's not working, you have to, before we can dissect what's not working, we have to dissect what is not making it work. Because then you can repair it. Just to say that, oh, you know what? We live in a time where people are just very uh, flippant and they marry and if they find someone better, they just leave. What that's saying is not that marriage is not sacred and that we're not respecting it, that we don't even know what it is and we don't know what it takes. So you think... If something's not working out, you just move on. That's why it's so vital to identify the ingredients, to identify the criteria that I've been talking about. So now let's explore that. If there's going to be a breakdown in any of the ingredients that I mentioned, you can rest assured that the marriage is going to be in crisis. Now what we do with that crisis is another question, which we'll talk about as well. We can live with it and just... Very high, very high tolerance for pain and dysfunctionality, basically a broken marriage that you just live with. Or you can go to war and just, just never really resolve things because people are just at each other's throats. Or there can be divorce. But of course the goal we want to do is repair. Not to get stuck in any of those options to repair. So let's look at some of them. Let's start with the first one, which is the reciprocity of a balanced relationship. Two people care about each other. And I have to tell you that, of course, goes directly connected to the other criteria of security and confidence and so on. So when it's there, a relationship will thrive. You know why? Because it's not just between the two couple. It spills over into their personal lives when there's that respect and when there's reciprocity. So then each one also supports what the other one does in their personal life, private lives, their work their hobbies. So even if something I don't like, I'll respect and support my spouse because there is that type of love and care. And vice versa. The spouse will support the other. The spouse will support her or his spouse in the same way. So it's growthful in the sense that it spills over to everything we do. It's not just when the couple are sitting and having coffee or dinner or being intimate with each other or traveling together or going to a show 
it spills over that even as, as they go off into each other's respective individual lives, work, friends, and so on, they know that they have a partner that supports their other activities. So what does that add? That adds a holistic element. That a relationship is not just when well, the two people are technically relating to each other. A relationship is 24-7, even when they're not in proximity of one another, even when they're traveling, even when they're at work, and when they're not even in each other's space. Because in general, what you're, do- what you're doing is you've built the confidence of each other, and therefore, it's, it affects all aspects of their lives. What happens when that's not there? What's not there, then people's their work or interests or hobbies are being undermined by the other, being criticized. Not only does your spouse not want to participate with you, but they actually dismiss it, and they're cynical about it, or they laugh at it, etc., etc. What does that do? Besides invalidating you and your interests, it also invalidates, the, it weakens the relationship. Because even if you have an area that you both relate to well, but if it doesn't affect the rest of it, it starts eroding. You start feeling drained by your spouse, the constant critique, the constant lack of interest, the constant dismissal, being dismissive of what you're, what's important to you. So it ends up being not being nurtured. You know, so I know couples, for example, they say our intimacy is excellent, but outside of the bedroom, it's terrible. Or he's always criticizing me, or she's always criticizing me. So can that last? So as you know, we know we have, as I said, high tolerance levels. Sometimes we last, we survive, we're resilient. And hopefully, maybe their intimacy, and hopefully it is healthy, can spill over and help the rest of their marriage. But sometimes it doesn't work that way because there comes a point where things explode and where things wear down. So even though the one part of the relationship may be working, if the other parts are not, it can become very big strain to the point of even destructive. So what do we learn from all this so far? What do we know from this? That a relationship... For it to work, you have to identify the elements that are healthy and that are not healthy. And when that's not healthy, and what's not healthy, figure out what's going on. So in a case like I'm describing right now, if indeed there is that type of invalidation or disinterest in a person's life, and there's a, a legitimate, you know, person, remember, spouses, you don't have to be constantly involved and immersed in everything your spouse is doing. But overall, there's a general respect and there's a general um, validation and love and nurturing. So if there is indeed such a complaint from one spouse, it's very important to see what the other spouse, how they respond. If they respond in ways, I don't understand what she's talking about or what he's talking about. I am validating. You know, they just deny it. Or they say, I don't see any value in that person's, what that person's doing. So then you go and try to figure out, is that spouse that's behaving in this way capable of change? Now, sometimes people find it very difficult to change because they're so confident, so convinced that they're right, they just don't allow room for another option. Well, this case is case by case. Let's, for argument's sake, they feel room for another option. Then you have what to work with. That's what a relationship is. Then you know you have, again, another ingredient in relationship. This I'm adding a new one now. Is that trust is built on accountability, not on perfection. Trust. If a person says, you know what, you're right. I should be validating, I should be respecting, I'm being dismissive, whatever reason, I don't have any interest in what you do, or I don't like your friends, so I just dismiss it. If a person says that, and they acknowledge, that's accountability. That accountability is another ingredient that creates cements relationships. Because that creates trust, and your spouse says, okay, I understand. 
And not only that, they may even give you the benefit of the doubt and say, you're right, sometimes my friends can be petty, or my friends can be nonsensical, or things that you don't like. But for me, it works. Or you may even learn something from your spouse. Once you have that language, you're already talking the language of repair, the language of healing, I should say, actually. So that introduces another element in a healthy relationship. Let's go back to the business example I gave. I said business for it to be successful, for it to know it's successful, you see its results. The results are good customers, are happy customers, consumers, happy employees. It's making a profit. It's successful in fulfilling its mission. Let's, for argument's sake, say something goes wrong in the company. There's a loss in a, in a quarter. Some employees are, are disgruntled. Customers are not happy. Whatever it is, what happens next? In an unhealthy company, there's denial, there's finger pointing, there's ignoring, there's dismissing. A healthy company is going to take themselves, take it very seriously, and be accountable. They'll say, "Okay, we'll look into it," and not just as lip service. They'll look into it, find out what the, who the culprit is, what the problem is, and do everything to correct it. That's another ingredient in healthy relationships. Every relationship, especially a marital one. Now what? When something does wrong, goes wrong, there's accountability. We could sit down and talk. We could say, I'm sorry. We could have remorse. We can correct. We can evaluate and improve. And as partners. When that happens, you know yourself, you, you can know from that that the marriage is working better. Now let me make it very clear as I said at the outset, there is no such thing as a perfect marriage. There's no such thing as a perfect company. There's no such thing as a perfect relationship. But there are inclinations, there are, predis- there are dispositions and ingredients that make it that way. Is there such a thing as a perfect cake? Yeah, maybe, a cake perhaps. But even that, you're not going to say it's perfect. We all make a little too much salt, a little too much sugar, but it balances it out and it's manageable. You can basically, um, not just tolerable, it's more than tolerable. You're able to compensate for the, the so-called incorrect mis- miscues. And the same thing in a good relationship. So besides the reciprocity I spoke about, besides each one taking initiative, besides the nurturing and respect, we've added now trust and accountability. Now, the more you come to understand a healthy relationship, the more you understand what's not healthy. And the more you understand why a relationship could fail, you know Why? Number one problem is people are not interested in healing. They're not interested in fixing. They're either finger-pointing or they give up. They're fatalistic and hopeless. They say, it's not for me, I'm out. Now, I should maybe mention and qualify there are real situations, I have to say, that divorce may be the only option. But that's as last resort, and that's not 50% of the cases we're talking about. We live in a society where it's become an option simply because of our own comfort zones and our own selfishness, not because it's necessary. So let's make that clear. And this is another example. If it's not necessary, then getting divorced is also destructive, both to both parties as well as to the family and children if there are any. Because it didn't really work. And is that an example for your children? Something doesn't go well. Instead of trying to make it work, you just get out because it's easier. And I'm not trying to finger point here as well. I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just talking about scenarios, of which I'm familiar with, that, and there are many different scenarios. So, to go back to the question about, um, about how, to, uh, how, to, how to beat the odds, defy the odds, 
as I said, we'd be to- we're talking now about, number one, what defines successful relationships and healthy relationships, and number two, what defines the unsuccessful and unhealthy, and what are we doing about them? That's the key here. What are we doing about it? So obviously, if everything is working well and it's healthy and successful, and there's the nurturing and the reciprocity and the initiative and the love and the accountability, you more or less are not going to be in a situation where the marriage is necessarily challenged because you're, you're, you're maintaining it well. But if the machine should break, meaning there should be a wound or an injury that affects the relationship, then you have to look at all these elements and see where is the weakness. So let's talk about another scenario. Now you have a couple, love each other, have most of these ingredients, not even all, but most, and then there's a betrayal. The husband is at work, he suddenly goes on a fling with a, a beautiful secretary or someone that he meets at, meets in coffee, and he betrays his spouse. Could be the other way around, I just use that as an example. Now, does that mean that everything was going wrong in the relationship because he did that? Not necessarily. They could have had a connection. They could have had the nurturing. There could be the respect. But, you know, people have uh, wander. They have desires. They have sexual impulses. And they can fall. And they can make mistakes. Now, let's dissect this, because this is such a fundamental issue of fidelity and infidelity in marriage today. Let's dissect this. There's different scenarios that can happen that can cause such a thing to happen. There could be a very good relationship between the spouses. But as I said, look, we have temptations. You see things. We're drawn by our eyes. We're drawn by our computers. And we have all kinds of different issues. And sometimes we feel our wife cannot, our spouse or husband or wife cannot satisfy certain needs, certain uh, wilder urges, some of the more darker sides. So we explore elsewhere sexually. And as a result... We betray or violate our marriage, violate ourselves. And we feel bad about it. This doesn't immediately mean that the marriage has no validity. It means that you have challenges. So what's the difference between a healthy person and an unhealthy person in this context? A healthy person will recognize it and go for help. They'll go to a therapist, a friend, a mentor. Maybe not to the spouse because it may not be necessary if you can correct your ways. You don't need to make it worse in that way. Now, we're not talking about the honesty. We'll soon get to that. But a healthy person is going to deal with it that way. And that may be a need at some point to be honest and acknowledge and show that you made a mistake and you uh, are open about it and transparent. That's case by case. That's what a healthier person will do. The unhealthy person, or the unhealthy, let's say I say the unhealthy, the unhealthy way, method used, I'm not going to define the person as unhealthy, the unhealthy method is excuses, Minimizing it, denying it, saying it's just, you know, it's meaningless. And all the other things. Or, it's fine, what's the problem? Open marriage. Marriage can't be successful unless I have some uh, mistress on the side. Or, for a woman, the other way around, whatever it's called. I don't know what a mistress is called in this context. So, these are all the unhealthy way. Why? You'll say, what's wrong? What's wrong? Someone came to speak to me. Many people, but one particular case said, what's the big thing? So I'm cheating on my wife. So I said, you have dinner with your wife and children? Yes. I said, while you're sitting at dinner, what are you thinking about? He said, well, sometimes I think about that other woman. I said, do you think, just because nobody knows, you don't think you're stealing the, the presence, your presence from them, from your pe- family? And trust me, everybody knows. Not consciously. They know you're not there, you're not present. 
and you're not present is going to compromise your own family. So again, the results. If someone could show that infidelity and what people call open marriages and experimentation has no impact on relationships and on children, then we can argue about it. I don't think anybody can show that. I would say our own selfish needs, we start justifying them with saying it's not so bad, everyone's doing it, and you can manage. Why do we have to have these Victorian puritanistic attitudes? What's wrong? Big thing. But think about it. Let's go back to the nurturing. When you nurture someone, you care about someone. You're there with them. You're committed to them. You're committed today and tomorrow. Not so much you have someone else. You're automatically compromising the first commitment. And I asked the question to, to that person. I said, what happens if your spouse did it to you? I wouldn't be able to deal with it. But maybe women are different. So what, but let's be honest. What's driving this argument? Not you're looking for the healthy approach, the right approach. You're looking to be comfortable. You're looking to be, take care of yourself. Now, sometimes doing that doesn't have such damaging effects, and sometimes it does. A healthy person is going to look at this in the face and not try to ignore or deny it. They may say, I have big temptation, I have big challenges, but they're not going to just minimize it. The unhealthy person will allow it to fester, and what do you think will happen? The marriage will deteriorate because you find your kicks, you find your highs elsewhere. And at some point you'll say, what do I need to go home for? I could have my wife and children, and I could be divorced, and I go off with my other girlfriend or boyfriend. I'm sorry for being so blunt, but this is part of the realities. What's happening here? Your own blind spots, your own, your own fantasies are taking over your life instead of your responsibilities and what's healthy. So we can do things that are very unhealthy, very self-destructive. So the first step is, are you accountable and you're going to do something about it? You're going to talk to someone about it. If not, I have to say, can you get away with it? I've seen people get away with it. I've seen marriages last, even with the knowledge, even with the conscious knowledge and acknowledgement that there was an infidelity. And people say, you know what? The, the, the known evil is better than the unknown evil. I'll live with him. He supports me. I like him. He's a good person. But what happens is you've violated and undermined the fundamental dignity of the relationship the fundamental sanctity, the fundamental commitment. You're not there entirely. Now, most people will say, it's not, when it comes to children, most people will acknowledge. Yeah, if you're going to say, I'm going to be with my children two days a week, but the other three days a week or the other five days a week, I have other children elsewhere or have other allegiances, you think it's not going to have an impact on your children? You think it's just a, 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 you can just compartmentalize and say, I'm, I'm with them all, I'll give them quality time, I'll take them all day to the park. But tomorrow I can do whatever I want. It doesn't work that way. Commitment means you're there. It doesn't mean you're there 24-7, but they know you're there. They know that you're emotionally there, psychologically there, spiritually there, financially there. There's security. Look at children who experience upheaval, taken away from one home, moved to another home, moved to countries. It's very unnerving. It, the displacement displaces their spirit. They don't feel the confidence. They want to know, this is the bed I sleep in. This is the school I go to. This is the route I take. This is the father and mother waiting for me at home with open arms. This is what happens on weekends and so on. The consistency is what creates the security. And the security is what creates trust. And trust is what creates confidence. Confidence is what creates a loving, nurturing environment. And there's no two ways around that. Can Are we resilient enough that we can compensate if there's a divorce or there's a death? 
Obviously, human beings have done that. But initially, why not give your children and your home and your spouse the best? So that's an overall, of, 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 I would say, an overview um, of some of the key elements in healthy relationships and what, what is required to beat the odds, defy the odds. And that is looking at what those ingredients are and looking what, how, you, how you address those ingredients. Do you provide them? Do you help introduce them? What do you do when it's not working? So let's talk about a few other now scenarios. Another scenario is where people start saying we're growing, we're growing apart. Our interests are not the same. Our uh, emotional bonding is not the same. We're used to each other. We need some new excitement, new adventure. Now, of course, you hear this often. I, I always wonder when I hear those lines, is there anything else going on? You, often it happens that you meet someone else, and then these thoughts start coming in because you start seeing there's another opportunity. And I say, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is that when you go shopping, in a sense, for another set of clothing, obviously you're going to start seeing the set of clothing you have as not being adequate. Now, does that mean you have to be closed-minded? No, it means you have to invest in revitalizing and, and infusing your marriage with new energy. Because it's the easiest thing to do is just to say, you know what, I'll go find myself another garment. I'll go find myself a new car. I'll, I'll go travel and move to a new home. It takes work to work on a relationship. And that's an, yet another ingredient. Now, when there's love and care, we want to work on it because there's constant new mysteries and new things to discover in the relationship. So here we get to the area of superficiality. We like the superficial. We like a new stimulation that's easy. Why should I do something that I'm used to? I can always find some new high, a new drug, a new food, a new cigar, so to speak, a new form of entertainment. Well, that's part of human nature. We gravitate to that. And you have to ask yourself, is that what should define my life? Well, we live in a life of leisure and a life of options where everything is available all the time. So obviously we are tempted and tested all the time on this direction. So this gets down to who you really are. What defines you? Now, I've heard this from many people saying, you know what? I have no problem just seeing myself as a fun-loving guy, fun-loving gal. I just like fun. I, you know, don't make, don't make everything so serious and so cabalistic and so mystical. I want to have fun. Leave me be. I don't want to have such a deep life, meaningful life. What do you say to a person like this? Well, if they live up to what they're saying and they indeed do not have the commitment necessary, you can cry to yourself and say they're undermining their own, their own happiness. Yes, they're undermining their own happiness. Why? Because will they be happy in this type of approach? Were they just so flippant with their relationships, with their families? Now again, our mind plays tricks on us and we can convince ourselves of anything. I've seen people gone through horrible divorces. Their children don't speak to them. Or even if they do, it's very strained. But they, in their minds, find, felt that they found some happiness. What they're doing is playing games with themselves. So I will say from my approach, I'm not here to make anybody's life miserable. I'm not looking to disturb anybody's uh, reverie and, uh, and, and um, illusions. No, many people live calmly because they're living an illusion. It, it bothers me, but it's my job to go wake them up. 
So my view on the matter is that as a friend, you try to send messages, hints, different, and see if there's an opening. If you see a person that you love or care about, you see they're doing things to be self-destructive, what do you do? So there's actually a law about it. You're supposed to do something because if you care for them, you should not be, you should not be complacent about it or indifferent. But there's also what you can do. They're an adult. You can't shackle them and straightjacket them and force them to do anything. So you do your best in letting, sending them the message, letting them know that you're there to talk about it, to help. But this comes down case by case, different people. I've seen people who've destroyed literally the gifts given to them. Beautiful spouses, beautiful family, and destroyed it because they made some money, and they got, they got themselves cocky and sense of entitlement, and suddenly got into drugs, and to other people and women and, and the whole stuff. Gambling and riding high. This is what the Talmud calls that a person does not sin unless there's a moment of insanity. They become somewhat insane. And I don't mean legally insane. I mean there's a blindness. They don't see the reality. They don't see the big picture. And they can literally destroy the thing that they love most. What do you do? So this is not really the topic of our discussion. What do you do? But I needed to mention it because it's part of the discussion, of course, because this affects and destroys many marriages. So I go back. If it's a scenario where a person simply no one to talk to, they're so denial, or they so have gone off the deep end, emotionally, psychologically, then you, know, you have to choose your battles. Let's take it back to not such an extreme, where a person is a, a basic fundamental kindness or goodness. But they've strayed, they've made their mistakes. So the goal you want really is accountability. Them to begin to at least acknowledge. The cure of any problem is, half awareness is half the cure of any problem. No awareness, then you say there's no problem. There's no problem, there's no problem. Like this, the, the story they tell about the Hill Parasha, one of the Hasidim, in the good old days there was no electricity, there was no air conditioning. So it was a hot, sweltering day in Russia, what did you do? The only way to escape was to go down to a cold basement. So the basement nat- naturally was away from the heat and away from the sun. Problem is there's no electricity, so there's no light. Abhila went down the steps to the basement, to the cellar. And uh, so dark, he's pitch dark, and he says, it's so dark in here, you know, like frightening him. The people sitting there for a while and cooling themselves off said, don't worry, stay here for a while, you get used to it. And, you could, and he, he couldn't see, but he reacted. He said, get used to it. That's exactly what I'm afraid about. Get used to it. And he made his way back. Rather deal with the heat and be able to see and clear than to get used to darkness. Because that's what happens. We get used to it. And then our standards lower. And then we say, you know, not so bad. Others have it worse. So we don't want to have a situation that that case. That's why there's accountability. And accountability is one of the first things you try to, you know, maybe the word accountability can be frightening. Let's say acknowledgement, awareness. That's the first thing you look for, because with that you can work. As I said, it's not perfection we're looking for. It's for accountability. It's for trust. With trust you can work. So here we have a whole series of different elements that define healthy relationships, but we have to be ready to accept them. If we start arguing and saying, we start arguing and saying, <coughs> excuse me, that no, that definition of healthy, I don't accept that. I ask you one question, why you're not accepting it? You don't like it? Or because you're living a life that's not consistent with it, and you'd rather not hear that it's unhealthy. So you'd rather just say, no, 
Rabbi Jacobson's opinion. So I ask you to look at the results, as I said. What are the consequences? What does it result in? That's where you'll define it. Now you'll say, you know what? I look at the results, not so bad. A fellow that I know got divorced. Both him and his wife, in my opinion, both made a mistake. But you know, I'm not the judge. They made got divorced. Their children are suffering. I deal with them. I talk to them. Both of them, in their own way, are denying it. No, they're doing well. Relatively well. Could be worse. I know they're doing not well. And actually in ways that our parents don't even know how destructive they can be. The parents simply cannot accept it. It's, it's too, too painful. Each one has found their own other, own significant other, and that's where they're invo- indulged in. And I say, your children not need you. And they need both of you. I'm not saying come back together. Maybe it's too late for that. But they need you. So they convince themselves how much the children need them. And they're completely living by their own whims. And there's nothing objective about it. And they don't even acknowledge that. They say, you think I don't love my child? And I know they love the child, but love is love and blindness is blindness. You can love your children and be blinded what they need and what you're providing and convince yourself something that's not real. That's the force of subjectivity. And when I say you may be a little subjective, no, I am subjective, but I know what my children need. I feel really bad. What can you do? What are you going to do? Wring their necks? I'm not going to do that. I don't think it will help anyway. So the point is that when you're dealing with that situation, what that teaches you that you need to find somewhere an opening. Sometimes time passes and they realize. You get a little older, your children get older, you start seeing other things, you mature a bit, you stop looking through your own myopic and, uh, and um, tunnel vision. Your short... What is a... Uh, a short-sighted vision, short-sightedness. And you begin to see. Sometimes you see it when it's a little late. It's never too late, but, but, but sometimes a little later than it should have been. So I don't want to talk about the nightmare scenarios, which are plenty of. I'd rather talk about the positive ones, because we're here to talk about how to beat the odds, how to defy the odds, how to build healthy relationships. So we have to realize, as I've so far spoken about, what healthy relationship is, what healthy love is. Look at what's going on in our lives. Are we living up to that to some extent? Are you accountable? Can you go to an objective person and get a good report card and assessment and evaluation of your own state of relationships and love and, and nurturing and marriage and so on? So that's good signs if the answer to all that is yes. I mean, all that meaning... That, yes, you have your different shortcomings, we all have, but you're able to look at it. But then, let's talk about one more thing, our demons, the darker voices inside of us. So here, I mentioned, of course, more than mentioned, I said, there's the blind spots, there's the self-interest, there's the narcissism, there's the sexual fantasies and desires, there's all other distractions that keep us busy. It could be money, it could be power, it can be the, all the other things that are seductive forces that keep us trapped from seeing ourselves and undermining even the things that are healthy and, and could be potentially successful in our lives. So looking at our demons. Now, it's not an easy thing to do. It's not easy at all. Because it's one thing looking at your positives, okay? But looking at a demon is almost a contradiction in terms. It's like looking at your fears, by definition, a fear doesn't let you look at it. 
Your demons are going to masquerade and camouflage themselves and never let you see them because that's exactly what the power of a true demon is. Here again, there's no real other choice but to talk to another party. Very hard to see your own demons. There's an expression, kol odem reya. a person sees all blemishes except his own. We don't see them. Just like we don't hear our voices as they, others hear them. Try listening to your voice on a tape recorder, on a recording, on an audio recording. And I use tape recorders from a different generation. But an audio recording. You, never, you never, usually don't like your voice. I don't like my voice. Even though it's out there and many people say they like it. Because <laughs> there's different, when you hear it through your own so-called diaphragm, or like underwater, you don't quite hear yourself. The same thing is when we look at life, we don't really see what others see. And we don't see blemishes. So I'm not here advocating we have to bring every demon out of the closet, every skeleton out of our um, attic. But I am suggesting that if things are challenged in a relationship, it's time to also bring the demons to the table with a therapist, with a mentor, with a teacher, with a, with a uh, mashpia, whatever you call it, because you need to look at it. And people have demons. People have demons that are sexual demons, sometimes things that happened to them in their childhood, trauma that affects their sexual lives, which affects their marriage and affects their sexual desires and other people as well, their, their interests and their addictions. There are other factors, demons, that can affect our other addictions like drug and alcohol, or even our fears and insecurities. These are not easy things to look at, but a healthy person looks at these things. Someone tells me they got divorced and they, and they didn't fight for their marriage without looking at anything. What is that saying? That's like saying, you know what? You had a business. The business was functioning. You decided to stop functioning. <clears throat> Instead of bringing in, excuse me, an expert or two to give you an evaluation, an assessment, is this, is this business viable or not? You just decided to close it down. It's easier. So business is business. That's money, business. But a family especially if there's children. What happens if it was viable? And if you would have worked on it, this and things would have happened. And now that you left it, you think you're going to find glick and you're going to find happiness elsewhere? More often than not, you don't. So what does all this tell us? Is the honesty and integrity necessary in the whole process? And without that, it's almost impossible, really to have a, 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 uh, <clears throat> a flourishing and successful and healthy relationship. You can have a minimal one, where you're, you know, the low burner, but flourishing, flourishing comes with all the factors I mentioned before. I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> all the factors I mentioned before, the nurturing, the reciprocity, the accountability, the trust, but also the honesty and integrity. Because that... Not just that you're being honest about the situation, that also feeds. That feeds a relationship. When you're honest with your children. And honesty doesn't mean you have to tell them everything. That's not what I mean. Honesty means that what you do tell them is honest. It's true. In a hostile world where there's so much corruption and lies, that's what they need. And the same thing with your spouse. You're creating a climate, an environment of trust, which in turn again feeds the security and feeds the confidence and feeds all the other vital components that make a human being a healthy human being. A functioning, not just a functioning, a thriving human being. Now, interestingly, 
Though I didn't mention it till now, for many reasons, but you probably always know the reason, I tried to speak about the subject matter without allowing it to be stereotyped or, or hijacked by any religious or Jewish or Torah myths. But a lot of what I'm speaking about is actually based on, interestingly, the secret relationships in this month that we are in right now. It's called the month of Elul. Elul actually is a word in Aramaic. It means just searching, searching, seeking, discovering, looking, introspection. So it's a month of introspection. It's the last of the twelve Hebrew months of the of the twelve months of the Hebrew year, the month that precedes Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, the New Year, and it's a full month of self-discovery. Hello, we seek and discover. Introspection. Elul, you have the secrets of what I've spoken about and many more secrets. So there's an acronym for the word Elul as well. Elul is an acronym. Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed, four letters in Hebrew. Ani, Ledeidi, V'todili. Ani, Aleph, Ledeidi, Lamed, V'doidi, the Vav, and Ledeidi, the Lamed. What does it mean? I am to my beloved and my beloved is to me. That contains all the secrets you need to know for healthy relationships and how to mend them and how to grow through them and how actually to build relationships, marriages that defy the odds. So everything I've said, you'll see hinted to in these words. So firstly, it's the month of Virgo. The mazel, the sun is Virgo. Besula in Hebrew. The month of marriage, the month of relationships. Why is it a month of relationship? Because the ultimate relationship was built in this month. The relationship when the Jewish people built the golden calf and betrayed infidelity to their marriage, the marriage of the Matan Torah of Sinai, the marriage between heaven and earth. So Moses broke the tablets, went back and marched up to the mountain to ask God for forgiveness to reconcile. So it's a month of reconciliation that builds up to Rosh Hashanah and ultimately Yom Kippur, the day of reconciliation, the day of hope, when Moses returns with the second tablet saying that God says, I've forgiven you. Salachti, I have forgiven as you have spoken, as you, Moses, have spoken. The day of birth of hope, as we've talked about many times. So this is a month of reconciliation. It's a month of building love after there's been a betrayal or a loss. So it's all about the secrets of how you build relationships. So let's go through them. Two reciprocal forces. I am to my beloved, my beloved to me. And they're like mirror images. They reflect in each other. Like a face is reflected in a water, so to a heart is reflected in another heart. That's a relationship, symbiotic, reciprocal. Anila Deidi starts, I initiate, I to my beloved. I don't wait for my beloved to come to me. Each one has to say that Anila Deidi, I am initiating. It's Ladeidi, Deidi means beloved. Beloved is nurturing. As the verse continues, as they pasture in the rose, they pasture they in the rose in the rose garden. So it's a pasturing. Pasturing. What do you do when you walk in a rose garden? You nurture each other. It's 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 nourishing. It's nurturing and nourishing. All the points I made before are all alluded to in these verses, in this verse, and this in this month's word, and of course accountability. The month of accountability. Introspection. Search. We're ready to look at each other. Look at ourselves with a deeper perspective. 
not to deny, not to escape, not to ignore. I'm ready to look at myself. When Moses said to God, they're ready to look at themselves, I need you to look at yourself and dig deeper and create a deeper love and deeper relationships. That's what this month has the power to do. So whoever you are and wherever you are, and whatever state you're in, whether you're in a marriage that's excellent, there's plenty of work to do to make it even better. Because nothing just works automatically. You need to maintain it and you need to continuously make it grow. If you're in a marriage relationship that's not working so well, so think of the ingredients. Think what's not working. Are we accountable? Is each of us accountable? Are we just blaming the other? Take yourself out of the way. Bring a little humility into the picture. If you're not in a relationship yet and you're looking for one, here are the ingredients, here are the methods, here are the, the, the main, the main, the, the main uh, the formulas that we need. If you found your soulmate but you're not sure, so use these criteria, use the litmus test that I've been talking about, which is to look at what are the consequences. If you're not sure if it's a healthy relationship, look at what effect it has. What impact it has. What on you and the other person. And remember, if you're in a family with children, the children are the best, the best barometer. Look at their welfare. See how happy they are. See how secure they feel. See how confident they are. See how comfortable they are. And look, don't be afraid to see something and may reflect on you or your spouse in a negative way. That will be a wake-up call, a lesson. Keep your priorities in place. Focus. Don't lose sight. Because there's nothing that you will leave in this world greater and more permanent and more impact than the legacy of your relationships, of your family, of your children. That will forever remain because those children are going to grow up and build their families and, and their families will bring the next generation in. Nothing has that impact. Not your business, not your money, not your intelligence, not your wisdom. It's the relationships and the result and the fruit of your relationships that are perpetual and live on. So take that to heart. We live in a world where we're so distracted by so many short-term gains. Temporary life. And we forget about permanent life. We forget about the permanent things that are forever and live on for forever and into eternity into eternity. And here's a month that we have, two months, 60 days. As if you're familiar with my book, 60 Days, A Journey, A Spiritual Guide to the High Holidays, it's the entire story of love, betrayal, and reconciliation, greater than the initial love. So you can get the book. We just actually got a new print came in today, a new edition. We could also get the daily emails. And now we started a new series called the, the 60 day journey, an audio daily, audio, one, two minute audio series, the 60 day journey to hope, renewal, and joy. You can sign up for that on WhatsApp or on some of the platforms, the podcast platforms. Just email us, and there's a phone number that you can subscribe to. These are the services we're providing. And may you have a glorious journey, a journey toward love, a journey toward reconciliation, a journey toward finding even deeper love after it's been perhaps injured or betrayed, or wounded, and find a deeper love that is eternal and forever and forever and ever. Everyone should have a very blessed week, a blessed month, a blessed new year, and we're here every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. 
And uh, please send in your questions, your comments, share with others. We're here for you. And we hope we can have a, a reciprocal relationship as well. Anila Daidi, I am to my beloved and my beloved to me. The dignity of our mutual reciprocal uh, journey and, uh, and life, the journey in life that we all share and we all um, complement each other. Thank you so much and be well.